Hey, welcome back to the Noggin Notes podcast. We've got a real treat for you today. Two gentlemen and myself, that would make three gentlemen, I suppose, talking about trafficking, human trafficking specifically, and what we can do about it. I think it's a really illuminating conversation. John Malcolm comes to us from Safe Embrace. He's been on the podcast a couple of times before, and a newcomer, Ronnie Toft, uh, Ron Toft, uh, works for Compassion First, and I've known him for several years. And the three of us discuss uh, very openly this problem of human trafficking. So I think you're going to enjoy it. And I, I hope it spurs you to move to action because I think that we all have a role to play in the betterment of our societies and helping to move people forward and, uh, frankly, in this case, pull them out of slavery. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. Our podcast, as always, is sponsored by Zephyr Wellness. Zephyr has completed its expansion in the Sparks office of Nevada, and we are proud to host multiple clinicians with very disparate uh, and varied talents, including one native Spanish speaker now. We're happy about that. Um, we also host graduate students in their practicum hours, and we're really excited about that because it allows us to see anybody regardless of insurance coverage or ability to pay, and we don't have to turn anybody away because of that. That's pretty cool. Check out ZephyrWellness.org for more, and we're also sponsored by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash notes, you can download your free 30-day trial of Audible. And if you're enjoying this type of audio content, which we presume you are because you're listening to us, and you'll probably enjoy the audio content that Audible provides. Audible is an Amazon company. Their reach is far and wide and is their volume of selection. It's truly unmatched, and we encourage you to go check that out. You can access many, many book titles and different types of audio content. AudibleTrial.com slash Noggin free 30-day trial. Get a free audiobook. Cancel anytime. Keep the audiobook. And uh, it helps everybody out. It helps enrich and educate your noggin, which is what this podcast plans to do. And that being said, we will launch into this interview, the first one of 2020. I guess it's the first fresh one of 2020 because uh, we had a reboot last week due to the holidays and we, we had John King back on. I got to reach out to John and invite him back on again. But uh, enjoy this first uh, fresh podcast of 2020. It's my interview with Ron Toft and John Malcolm about human trafficking. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Noggin Notes, and today I'm interviewing, or I have the pleasure, I should say, to interview John Malcolm, again, from Safe Embrace. Hello, John. Well, how are you doing? Good. You've been on a couple of times, and hopefully the audience is familiar with you, and if they're not, they can go back and uh, listen to our other podcasts. And we have Ronnie Toft. Hi, Ron. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves beyond just your first names, but this is, uh, we're, we're... is it tra- it's Trafficking Awareness Month? Correct. It's Human Trafficking yeah. Awareness Month. Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and it's January of 2020. We just turned the corner into the new year, and um, I'm going to let you guys explain what all that means. Uh, brief introductions. John works for Safe Embrace. Um, we've talked about Safe Embrace. Safe Embrace is a great clinical partner with. Zephyr Wellness, and uh, Ron has worked historically for Compassion First, which does international uh, anti-trafficking efforts, and I'll let you guys uh, take it away from there. You guys have presented before, and you've worked together, so this isn't uh, a brand new introduction, and I want to I just dive into it, but uh, for now, uh, John, explain why Safe Embrace is doing what it's doing, and what are some of the other community efforts, because you guys aren't the only one. There are others. No, absolutely, yeah. So for um, 
for anyone who doesn't know what Safe Embrace is, we're a nonprofit located out of Sparks, Nevada that helps with victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and victims of sex and labor trafficking. Um, we provide intervention and prevention services, so emergency shelter, transitional housing, support groups, things like that. Um, my job is trying to prevent the next generation coming up in our community from coming either um, a perpetrator of this or even a victim of this um, through awareness events and um, education. Right. So for January, we've been partnering up with other agencies such as Awaken, uh, Washoe County Human Services, the Attorney General's Office to try to bring awareness to um, an issue that's becoming more and more prevalent in our community. And Ron, your efforts are uh, not uh, not anti-local, but you you're with Compassion First, and Compassion First largely does international stuff, as I alluded earlier. Explain mm-hmm. some of the differences, maybe. Yeah, so Compassion First is actually based in Oregon, but uh, they operate in Indonesia, <clears throat> and uh, they. Uh, I've been doing international work, uh, again, as you said, not necessarily because there's nothing to do in America in this field. There's more than enough, uh, but simply because uh, what they were drawn to was uh, what I call the supply side of the equation. In other words, uh, this is where, uh, well, let me start with this. They uh, focus specifically on child sexual trafficking. So that's their area of specialty. And uh, that a lot of the girls that they work with come from uh, other countries, uh, specifically in Indonesia. So what they do is try to stop it from that source. Uh, so they're basically trying to cut off the supply by helping uh, work with local organizations, specifically uh, law enforcement and the judicial system in those areas, to uh, be persecuting uh, or prosecuting rather these crimes. And they also have shelters so that when the girls are rescued, they have somewhere safe to go uh, to do everything from uh, their education to their counseling, uh, reintegrating into family and school and society at large. Uh, going through their uh, court case and their legal um, issues that come from this. And so uh, they've been there about 10 years, and they've really done uh, some pretty amazing work in curbing uh, trafficking in that part of the world. In fact, the region where they started, uh, they've seen about a um, 50% drop in trafficking. Um, so they've had a really big impact in one of the areas of the world where uh, this is uh, a, it's a real hotspot of child trafficking. So uh, they've been kind of cutting it off at that source. So pardon me for being uh, cynical, but if you squash 50% of trafficking in one area, doesn't it mean you just kind of, it's like squeezing a balloon, it just moves to some other area? Is that, I mean, it doesn't seem like we're going to get rid of it necessarily. Yeah, certainly. And and I would say that we're, nobody's going to get rid of it, but of course it's something worth fighting for because these are Mm -hmm. individual lives that are being affected. Um, However, uh, there is, it has a little bit of that balloon effect, uh, but really what the goal is, is to make this, uh, not worth the effort, not worth the risk for the traffickers themselves. And if you can uh, make this very illegal uh, enterprise, uh, if you can put the squeeze on them and make it not worth the risk uh, to make the money off of these girls, then most of them will just stop, as is true with any criminal enterprise. Uh, that being said, it's a massive problem, and John and I can get into this. It's one of the biggest criminal uh, enterprises or industries in the world, uh, human trafficking at large. You know, I want to back up just a little bit and define what it is, because I mm-hmm. think most listening audience is probably like me, where uh, even though I'm in this field, in this profession where I'm, you know, working with mental health and whatnot, uh, on the periphery are these lar- very large issues like homelessness, for example, or trafficking. Um, you know, we could even say substance abuse. Is, you know, it's a very large issue. We think we understand it because we hear about it a lot. But but let's define human trafficking for the the broader listening audience, and then we'll get into some 
uh, conversation about how to identify it and if you're in a profession that may be uh, more or less uh, susceptible to it or maybe have a little higher uh, chance of contact, we can get into that as well. So who, are, who wants to take a crack at definition? If we had to break it down to something very, very simple for you know everyone to understand, it's it's just it's slavery. This is modern day slavery, really. That's what it is. So, if I, but but I'm if I'm fat, dumb, and happy in America, and and you know we're the land of the free and the home of the brave and all that stuff, and we look around like, what are you talking about slavery? We we abolished that. What do you mean? So it's kind of involved, right? Um, so how it's involved now, it's kind of been broken down into two kind of sectors, and, and Ron can add on to it as well, um, with sex trafficking and then labor trafficking. So we look at the first one with sex trafficking, right? So that's, for example, forced prostitution, forced sex work, child sex slaves, things like that. The biggest one that's starting to really pop up to a lot is labor trafficking, right? You look at um, the travel industry, you look at domestic work, you look at... Um, farming, agriculture, things like that. So pretty much what you're doing is you're you're purchasing these people, these victims. And um, to say too, when you talk wrong to talk about it more, is majority of our victims um, that we work with are under the age of 18, right? It, it's still bizarre to me, and I, I don't mean to be pedantic or, or beat the horse, but it's it's still like we're in America, and don't people voluntarily enter into their own labor agreements? I mean, like, like, let's really, really pick apart my cynicism here and say, come on, man, like, these people want to work. Because I know that's the, the pushback that I've heard whenever I try to have these conversations. And I'm playing purposely dumb here right. um, to, to help really dig into this and help il- illuminate how bad the problem is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although uh, I'm no expert on the labor trafficking side of it, uh, the definitions essentially allow for uh, anybody that is uh, forced or coerced or manipulated into any kind of labor and essentially not getting paid for it, or at least not seeing free benefits from it, uh, free will benefits, I should say. Uh, so, you know, they're being uh, controlled by another entity. Uh, they're doing this work against their will, and uh, they're most of the time not seeing anything from it. How do we identify this? Because it still seems, I'm thinking about my ears uh, two or three years ago. My ears two or three years ago would hear this as, um, well, come on, man. Like, where, where could this possibly exist in, in the broad daylight of, of the United States of America in 2020 where people are compelled to work against their will? That's, that's not something we're, we're familiar with. Yeah, one of the ways that I've often thought of it and told other people is, as John said, this is uh, absolutely modern-day slavery, and, and most people fighting this issue will, will put it that way. But it's a little bit different than what we as Americans think of as slavery in the history of our own country uh, because, as you said, when we think of slavery, we think that was, uh, you know, back in the day, we abolished it and it's gone and good for us. The problem is it didn't really go away. It just went underground. Um, mm. So we just didn't see it for a long time, but it continued to thrive underground. And now it's become uh, such a big issue that it's starting to rise up to the surface again. And over the last decade, I would say people are starting to become more and more aware that this is happening, in fact, all over the world, including in America. Uh, as I got involved with these issues and I started to learn more about it, uh, the biggest surprise to me was how prolific it is, uh, that it exists everywhere. I mean, we, we would probably be more willing to believe that this happens in big cities, right, or um, in you know poor countries around the world or wherever. But, I mean, if you follow the news, if you follow the stories, if you follow uh, where this is happening, rural America uh, – Pretty much any town of any size has got this issue, maybe not necessarily uh, in the visible way that you may think of of seeing, you know, people 
being forced to work or uh, being sexually exploited against their will, but even things like uh, the money is being passed through town or uh, something along the lines of them being transported through town with uh, people helping out with that. I mean, it's, it's a massive industry uh, that, in fact, the experts say that it's just right below the drug uh, trafficking industry as far as number of people and, and money involved. Uh, the latest figures I read was something like it's a $150 billion industry. It's massive. Uh, and there's some 25 million people estimated to be in some form of trafficking or another. Uh, so it happens everywhere, and it's bigger than you think. But we don't always see it uh, because it's gone underground after it was abolished. So let's let's put some labels to it, or at least some parameters and some optics. What does it look like? Like uh, we live in Reno. Reno's roughly 400,000 people in the you know greater metro area of Reno Sparks and the outlying areas. Um, where might we see someone? working or forced to work against their will that looks to the random public like they're just working a job. What does that look like? So, um, for example, let's just look at youth homeless, right? Um, Over 56% of our youth homeless between the ages of 18 and 24 are victims of trafficking, whether it's sex or labor trafficking. So, for example, let's look at you have your youth homeless couple. One's 20, one's 18, right? Suffer from mental health, substance abuse, Right, they're just looking for money just to survive. Right, you're putting that fight or flight kind of stance. Um, you have someone that needs work to be done. Right, you look at the growth of rural enterprises out with, say, for example, Fernley, right, agriculture, something like that. Fernley for the listening audience, because we are international and we have people listening all over the world. Fernley is about 30 miles uh, east of Reno, and we live in a mountainous area, so it's not a straight shot. You have to wind through some canyons and uh, go over some mountains. Um, so it's it's fairly removed, even though it's only you know twenty six thirty miles away, um, but it's a smaller uh, community. It's about twenty five thousand people. So. Mm-hmm. Right. So you look at, for example, let's look at a couple. Right. They just gave birth to their kid. Um, their kid just got taken away from CPS because they're youth home, they're homeless and they can't provide um, a quality of life for a child. Right. So they need money to prove that they're um, going to somehow reunite with this with their child. Um, Someone comes out to him and says, hey, you know, you want to earn a couple hundred bucks? I can help you come out to this farm, pay you straight cash day by day, right? For them, they, yeah, let's go. Let's sign up. Um, they get sucked into it, right? They don't get paid. They can become labor, and then they don't leave that farm. And that's stories that happen that I've heard um, quite a bit with our youth homeless. So if I'm a skeptic, I just go, well, well, they didn't have anything before. They don't have anything still. What keeps them working if they're not getting paid? Um, when it comes to that, then we go kind of into – um, what these tactic, what these these traffickers use is a lot that abusers use, right? And it's that power and control, right? They just can't. You get into you get into this fight or flight where you just want to survive, and then you just know that's that's how you survive. It's just making sure that um, your abuser is you know is happy, and it's unfortunate, and that's something that we see a lot just because of our victims and our work how it intersects with human trafficking and domestic violence and sexual assault is that power and control aspect um, that. Unfortunately, um, our victors and victims and survivors um, can't get out of. I'm going to keep playing devil's advocate here and say, well, where does the trafficking come in? I hear trafficking. It sounds like somebody's being moved from one place to another. But these people sound like um, maybe indentured servants. Uh, but I don't, I don't necessarily see the trafficking, quote unquote, part of it. Um, where does that play in? So for the moving part, and you can add on from the international aspect, we have a you know uh, a really major highway that runs through Reno, and that's I-80, 
and it can catch from it connects from San Francisco to New York, uh, New Jersey, and stops in Chicago, and all over a lot of major metropolitan areas uh, throughout the United States. Um, and then rocking out onto it with the international aspect, if you look at hotbeds of where human trafficking it is, it's near bodies of water, right? But this is a supply and demand uh, business, right? There's a supply for it. There's a demand for it. We need to find a supply. So um, with having that major highway, there's a reason why it's big here in Reno, Nevada, because it's a great place to shut up shop, right? It's a 24-hour lifestyle. Nevada's got a lot of vices, right? There's a lot of vulnerable people out here that can be easily um, become victims of sex and labor trafficking. So it's not it's not people in shipping crates like we're used to, although I'm guessing that probably happens as well, right? Um, but that's, that's what I'm, you know, I think the public impression is you got a uh, kid grabbed, you know, from the scruff of the neck, uh, snatched off the street, thrown into a shipping crate and sent overseas. And that's actually not the typical uh, setup from what I'm hearing. Yeah, I mean, that certainly is a piece of it. Uh, every once in a while, you'll hear a, a news story about, you know, people being found in a shipping crate. Uh, they're often dead because they were neglected. Uh, there was a, a big high profile one uh, in Britain recently. Um, and you'll see that every once in a while, and that's absolute. That is trafficking. That's what mm-hmm. it is. Um, you know, especially with the increase in immigration recently all around the world. Uh, you know, we've been hearing about uh, people like uh, coyotes who are uh, exploiting people to get them across borders uh, secretly. Things like this. I mean, that's a version of trafficking. And so, a lot of times, you it define is define coyote real quick, because all I can think of is the animal. Uh, yeah, or the phoenix coyotes. <laughs> Not a hockey team. Basically, it's a person who. Uh, tells people who are trying to get into another country that uh, I can get you there, you know, uh, past the authorities. I can get you over the border if you pay me usually an exorbitant amount of money. Um, And then to what John was saying earlier, one of the common uh, manipulations and and power dynamics that goes into that later is that uh, they'll say, you know, uh, we'll get you a passport once you're over there or we'll hold on to your papers, get you over safely or whatever. Uh, whatever lie they tell them. And then once they're in their destination, they say, well, now you owe us $100,000 for all the uh, the work and the risk that we took getting you here. So you're going to work for us and we're not going to release your your identifying papers until you do what we tell you to. And of course, then it's just a vicious cycle where uh, you you don't know the language of the country. You don't have um, any kind of paperwork to uh, get yourself set up. You're essentially at the mercy of these people um, and and they exploit it. to make money off of you. That's really sinister. And this is happening all over the world. Cause I think, I think, you know, naturally if we're living in America, we think the U S Mexico border. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and we're thinking people fleeing countries that, uh, where the, the conditions are not advantageous to continue living or thriving. Um, and they come to America cause it's, you know, land of prosperity and all that, but this is happening all over the place. And what, what I'm hearing is that, these folks who are trying to travel and, and, and emigrate, they, they end up trusting the wrong people who then get them into a loop of, um, of abuse. Mm-hmm. It's not even so much trusting the wrong people. It's that you didn't have much of a choice otherwise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, this – and that's, again, like what John was saying. That's the, uh, the manipulation and the power differences that come into play here is that uh, you're in a desperate situation someone comes and says they can help you out uh, where otherwise you might not see a way out and then from there they kind of have you uh, by the short hairs and there's not much you can do and you feel before you know you feel trapped and um and then you know a lot of people just feel like well this is my life now (laughs) and i don't have a choice um and i'm stuck in this cycle and i don't know how to get help i don't know who to go to help 
a lot of times they're told, well, you know, you're a criminal in this country, so you'll be arrested if you go to the police, um, mm-hmm. all these kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. They control all of their communication. They control all of their resources. Uh, it's, uh, and this is where the idea of slavery comes into play here is they're controlling every aspect of their life. And it's not for their good, right? It's to exploit them, um, whether they're forcing them to have sex with uh, whoever they tell them to, whether they're forcing them to work. Uh, and, you know, it's not like they're making... Uh, an income off of this, right? They're being exploited. And so all the money is going to those who control them. Um, so it's essentially a hopeless situation. These people find themselves in, or at least that's how it feels. Um, and that's a big part of why the uh, anti-trafficking fight is all about getting the word out to those who are being exploited, that there is help out there, uh, that they're not going to be, you know, just thrown in jail if they reach out to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to be deported back to the country where gang violence was uh, threatening their family. If they speak out, um, that there are options and that, um, you know, they're not out th- they're not alone out there because that's uh, what the traffickers try to make you feel is you're alone, you're at our mercy, and you're going to do what we tell you or else. Mm-hmm. It sounds like d- the domestic violence cycle. Yeah, really. exactly. Mm-hmm. And then just even just to add on from the law enforcement about um, reporting it, um, we look at, for example, just sexual assault of one, uh, alone. Uh, less than 1% of our victims report their sexual assault to law enforcement. Less than 1%? 1%, yep. What are the reasons for that? I think a lot of it's trust. You know, a lot of it's, um, you know, the believing and the part that they don't have the, um, unfortunately, the the mindset that someone else will believe their story, right? Mm-hmm. Or they've gone and then they get stuck in this cycle and they get pushed around from different resources and, you know, other nonprofits can't help them out. And then they just lose trust with trying to find help. And we see that a lot with human trafficking. Almost one in seven, I believe, uh, youth runaways that are, end up being trafficked are in custody of social services. So that's a really hard um, stat to even think, even when they're getting help. It's just that we're not just we're not doing enough, right? We think we are. We have a great um, mindset. We we all of us want to help, but they actually, when it comes to the actually doing it to put in the, I guess, to work, um, we're not doing a very good job. So what does a common citizen do other than donate to uh, Safe Embrace, donate to Awaken, donate to Compassion First? Um, wh- what do we do to help? Uh, pass this message along, raise awareness, uh, notice it in our own communities. Um, what what does it practically look like? I'm not wandering the farms outside of Fernley or Lovelock or Winnemucca. Um, you know, what, what does it look like in the middle of Reno or, or New York City or uh, or or Perth? You know, like what what is it? How do we know? What do we do? I think for one, for sure, is you know trusting your gut instinct. If something's not right, it's not right. Right. You look at, for example, nightclubs, right? The one guy that's you can look at, for example, to someone that's going around talking to people and then, you know, trying to take advantage of drinks, right? You know, that's common with date rape, but that also is, you know, very common with um human trafficking. Oh, interesting. As well, okay. Right. Huh. And then, you know, there's a great um danger assessment that the attorney's general's office in Nevada has for law enforcement and question questions to ask when they come across victims uh, when it comes to uh human trafficking. So if you, for example, you know, looking and asking about the whole passport, right? Did someone guarantee you papers when you were to come over the border if you're working with things like that? Um, a lot of it is in an ER setting that's huge, especially with medical. Over 88% of healthcare providers will come across a victim of human trafficking. Right, because they're not well cared for and they end up in the hospital. Yeah, exactly. And um, I kind of break it down to a sports analogy, right? Um, if your best player is not out there, you're going to try to get them to your trainer and get them healed as quick as possible so they get back on the field, right? You don't want your C team out there uh, mm. trying to make plays, right? So they're going to get help. 
right? Mm -hmm. So for example, um, in an ER setting, if they can't be left alone at any time, that's a red flag, not only for domestic violence, but also human trafficking as well. Right? So and you mean like the, the patient who comes in, uh, whoever brings them in, won't leave them there, is yes. what you're saying? Yes, correct. So there's some, some person shadowing them, right. like, like almost like a chaperone. Mm -hmm. okay. or, or answering their questions for them. Stories don't line up right. Unusual reactions to, for example, gynecology um, exams, things like that. Um, especially with children, too. Kind of already um, like sexual grooming mm -hmm. is also very prevalent for not only that to be a red flag for child abuse, but also human trafficking. Gotcha. Um, Ronnie, t you guys just recently presented, and I didn't know this until like right before we started recording. <laughs> um, I actually didn't know how closely you, had, you two had been working. I, I know you both from different capacities, and we just like one day I was like, hey, John, talk to this guy, Ron Toft. <laughs> and Ronnie, hey, John's going to reach out. Um, but since then, you've, you've done several presentations and whatnot. Um, share some of those, but specifically this one that uh, seems uh, really surprising. Yeah, so the one we recently just did was a, I guess, consulting would be probably the best way to put it, almost mm -hmm. a consulting kind of seminar for a uh, delegation from South Korea on how to address human trafficking victims, uh, refugees from North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, it was a really, we hit it out of the park. They had, it was over, I think, a two-hour um, presentation and over an hour of that was Q&A for just us. And the yeah. biggest question, I mean, not only the work that we do, especially because I think how we uh, laid it out from an international standpoint and from a United, uh, from a domestic standpoint, I think it was, it was a home run, but they were shocked that majority of the questions just because it's two guys doing the presentation. Yeah. Tell me how this came to be. Well, it was actually in collaboration with the university in town. They have like a uh, <clears throat> program where they bring professionals from other countries um, into the area for different reasons. And I, I uh, don't know how exactly this group came here to Reno, but uh, they were interested while they were here and talking with people in the area uh, about the issue of trafficking, as John said, and specifically um, how to deal with some of the issues in their country. And, um, and that was great because they, uh, like a lot of other countries, this is still a very new issue not that it's happening that's new but that the awareness is new uh, that people are fighting against it is new and so resources are rare uh, knowledge is rare education is rare and um, so they were just uh, happy to ask questions like john said for a long time and just kind of uh, glean from our experience and our knowledge in this uh, america is actually really on the forefront of this issue uh, the american government specifically has really taken this on over the last decade uh, their trafficking in persons report that comes out every year uh, generates, um, or rather is the result of <clears throat> research from uh, basically every country on earth, and they get a score of how they're doing in trafficking in persons. Um, and uh, we, we've really done a, a pretty good job of uh, getting the laws in line in order to be taking care of this problem from a law enforcement and a judicial point of view. Um, there's definitely still some work to be done, but America's been uh, doing a great job, actually, of getting on the forefront of this issue. So um, I think there's a lot that people from other countries can learn from that and kind of use that example. <clears throat> what are some highlights of the presentation that you gave? And then uh, if you could maybe remember some of the questions that stood out that may be useful for our audience, uh, share those if you would, please. Uh, you know, I wanted to highlight something that John said, that they were really surprised. It was all women, uh, mostly all women. Um, that were are doing this work in South Korea uh, from this delegation, and they were really surprised to see two men involved in it. And um, I've, uh, as a man myself, <laughs> working uh, overseas with this issue, that's very common. Um, that people are surprised that men are getting involved in the, in the issue, and I think that's a big deal because, uh, in my opinion, men should be in, more involved in this. I Why think. aren't they? 
Uh, you know, I think especially uh, in other countries, it doesn't seem as um, masculine or macho of a thing. You know, you're dealing mostly with women and children. Um, although actually uh, recent studies have shown there's a lot more men being trafficked than we previously thought or that you might imagine. Uh, but it just doesn't seem, uh, you know, like a very masculine thing to be helping <laughs> these men and children in, in a lot of cultures, uh, which is unfortunate because I think that it's absolutely uh, something yeah, right? they should be doing. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah. it seems like the the most manly thing you can do is protect other human totally beings, agree. right? If we're actually talking about authentic masculinity, yes. not this weird toxic masculinity. Yeah. Everybody's and not only that, but about. you know the the vast majority of uh, the people committing this crime, be they the Johns buying the people or the, the traffickers doing it, are men. So uh, why are we allowing men to be the criminals and women to be the ones uh, Well, and why are we allowing them? those men to represent what manhood looks like? Exactly. Like, shouldn't right. we step up and exactly. show what real masculinity looks like, mm-hmm. which is the, the advocacy and the, and the protection? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think the more men that, that um, you know, allow this to be a part of what defines them as a man— the better this is going to be, and the the I think um, we as men can add a, a new aspect to this fight um, and uh, kind of flex our muscles, so to speak, to protect those who can't protect themselves. And if that's not something that makes you feel like a man, I don't know what does. Yeah. <laughs> and then to add on, kind of I guess one question that I think was asked for you that when we talked about the whole the whole masculinity thing mm-hmm. was how you have I think it was security guards at yeah. for stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that was kind of you know we look at for example. Um, we talk about masculinity, right? And I think that providing security, right, kind of gives that illusion that you that's a masculine trait to have, right? Being the protector. Right. And then you're protecting women and children. And I think you I think three out of three guys in the room here say that's a huge masculine trait to have <laughs> yeah. is to protect you always hear that, right? Protect protect women and children, right? Yeah. And when it comes to victims of human trafficking, there are women and then there are children. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. protectors are that's a very common thing that makes a masculine trait and holding people accountable for their actions. So um, it's starting to pick up. I think, you know, especially in the past, even with the Noggin Notes podcast, with, you know, having uh, John Kane on, who's an expert in this, and then having us, and then there's other, um, you know, government officials that are, you know, working hard to um, combat this. And then also with law enforcement, you know, I think Nevada is one of the more transparent areas and, you know, really the country for law enforcement, especially when you go and train recruits on the, you know, for mental health and things like that. And, you know, they're starting to look and become a little bit more victim-centered and more trauma-informed, and I think that's crucial, um, you know, to prevent this. And that's a field that's, you know, especially when it comes to patrol officers, um, that's majority dominated by men. Yeah, I want to highlight somebody who's not present with us, but maybe one day she'll be on here, is Jill Tolls, who's a local uh, assemblywoman in the in the Nevada state legislature who got a bill passed recently that attacks the demand side mm-hmm. of uh, trafficking. And what it, what it essentially does is it uh, makes the penalties so severe for uh, doing the, the jawning or the, the trafficking, I don't know, I'm making up verbs here, <laughs> but um, that, that Nevada's moving away from being uh, a, a warm, hospitable place for this nefarious activity to happen to be so unpalatable that, that people don't want to come here anymore. Uh, so there's the demand side. If you, if you punish so severely the, the perpetration of the crime, it uh, de-incentivizes the, the likelihood that people are going to do it here. You guys are attacking the supply side, which is the, the human beings who are being trafficked by informing and and um, telling them that you know all is not lost if you break free, and we will help you, and there are resources for it. So I guess in conjunction the two, if we're if we're hitting both sides, we want to make 
we want to make Earth better by um, being a warm, welcoming place for people who are experiencing this type of victimhood to come out and get healing, right? And um, so when you mentioned, you know, the, the, the local government officials and that kind of thing, I think, I think Jill needs to be acknowledged for her efforts because it's, it's a bold move to, to try to increase penalties for any sort of crime, but especially when this, this is heinous as this and the, the damage and the destruction are so um, long-standing, I think, and the ripple effect is just gigantic. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, this is actually something else that we talked about in that last presentation we did, John and I. Um, but I'm definitely thankful for legislation like that because we've seen it uh, work to great effect in other countries, specifically Nordic nations. I think Sweden was uh, one of, if not the first, to uh, set their laws from that angle of mm. not just saying it's illegal to uh, sell yourself as a prostitute or to sell other people as a trafficker. It's uh, you know, you'll, you'll get severely punished if you're the one caught buying right. um, and, and putting the onus on the, the demand side of this supply demand, um, equation. And so, uh, that's been uh, proven to be very successful. And that's one of those things that it has to start with the legislation, uh, cause then the enforcement can follow and then you start to see results from that. Yeah. And I think historically we've wanted to punish the prostitutes, right? If we're talking sex traffic and, and that's not fair if they've been, um, unduly coerced into that, um, environment, you, you, all you're doing is just compounding pain. Mm-hmm. It's like well, you took a you took a, somebody from a traumatic upbringing who was doing this behavior out of mere survival, and then now you're going to throw them in jail and like give them a criminal record. That that makes no sense. What we want to do is we want to heal. So another part of that legislation was to expunge records related mm-hmm. to that, which is really great because it's very it's very liberating and people can restore this is restorative justice, right? Mm-hmm. We restore their lives and and make them full participants in this in the society again um but if we if we only attack you know the the people who are doing the the bad deed uh on the on the supply side then we miss the the demand side which is we you know we got to go after those people and and plug a hole uh, plug that hole yeah that's also uh doubly ineffective to uh punish the women or in this case the prostitutes or whoever may be the the victims of this uh because from the view of the traffickers, they're a product. Uh, yeah. The women are the product. And that'd be like, you know, fighting drugs, it'd be like throwing the cocaine in jail. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's like there, there's, you're kind of missing the point. Uh, you're, you're attacking the symptom and not uh, the, the source of the problem. So even from the supply side, that's the wrong direction to be going. And, of course, it's always been um, illegal in most places to, uh, you know, enslave people in one form or the other. Um, but that's where the uh, legislative and law enforcement focus needs to be is getting to the person who is doing the trafficking, the one who is forcing these people into these situations rather than punishing the people themselves for being forced into that position. Let's talk about that. How do you find those people domestically, internationally? Mm-hmm. I mean, how's it close? Well, how do you find but the, the, the traffickers? Like, it seems like a Hydra, like, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, these multiple mm-hmm. heads and, um, I don't know if there's some international syndicate, you know, that, that does this, or, <laughs> mm. uh, or if it's, you know, it's like, can you can you wipe out one boss and it takes out an entire network, or is it is it much more complicated than that because it's dis- decentralized? Yeah, um, it's a very complex. There's a lot of layers to it, yeah. and we've already kind of uh, um, touched on it with the the drugs, right? Mm. They, this kind of business really works hand in hand, right? Usually for you know, for example, if you're transporting, you know kilos of kilos of drugs usually there's people 
involved yeah, with that's that. Trafficking. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So drug dealers, you know, pimps, you know, this is also a very white collar crime um, enterprise as well. Um, I know, for example, in my background, my studies, um, Canadian, so when um, up in Canada, um, a lot of the grunts that do all the work, all the foot soldiers are the bike gains. I mean, the people who benefit from it are people that you don't, we don't recognize, lawyers, doctors, things like that. It's a very, um, the people that do it well, we don't see them because they do it well, right? Mm -hmm. They blend in very well society, right? But the ones that you have to obviously work up the totem pole, um, for example, drug dealers, pimps, things like that, um, I think that's a great place to start because it's a hand-in-hand enterprise. Yeah, and although... uh I'll start by saying I'm no expert on the enforcement side. Uh, I've never, you know, done an investigation into traffickers to bust a ring or whatever. Um, But I do know that uh, internationally speaking, one thing that Compassion First has had a lot of success with. In fact, uh, one of the first things they realized they had to do when they got there was uh, to work with the law enforcement and the the judicial branch um, to uh, make sure that they were uh, doing this with integrity because <laughs> it's easy for mm. it to, to infiltrate into those systems because there's a lot of money involved mm. uh, like any criminal criminal enterprise. And uh, so when they were able to uh, create a, the ability, the channel for law enforcement and for judges and prosecutors to be able to uh, really tackle this problem uh, free of corruption and be able to fight the corruption in their own ranks. Uh, I mean, that really changed the game for them uh, because again, you, you know, this is a, a risk for the pros, uh, for the traffickers because this is illegal and they'll, you know, uh, get into big trouble for this. So it's basically a money game for them. If you make it not uh, – if you make the risk of getting caught greater than the potential reward of the money, then they're not going to do it because uh, it's a business. And, and uh, You're talking about in Indonesia when you guys went Yeah, that's there, right? right. That's right. You had to change a whole culture of uh, law enforcement. Yeah, essentially. And, and we did that by, uh, you know, bringing in experts in those fields from America to do training, um, you know, to kind of uh, – help them learn how to tackle this problem from a more effective uh, angle. And uh, that really helped a lot. And so, um, and, and I mean, there's some awesome guys in the regions that Compassion Force works uh, in the law enforcement, uh, the, you know, district attorney's office, their, their version of that uh, throughout the whole judicial branch. And they've really done amazing work helping these girls that Compassion Works um, tries to get off the streets. So uh, that is a huge piece of this puzzle is, when people like law enforcement get in, uh, get involved and start working to protect these people, totally changes the game. How do you convince somebody who's uh, so quick to sell their morality for a buck to go back the other direction? Like it seems, it seems like an impossible. Like there's there's an entrenched system there. If the, if the money's so large, I'm thinking organized crime. Like you know, in the 20s, people are people wind up dead if they don't like fall into line. How do you how do you encourage these people to like set fear aside and like you know, do the proper, you know, terminations or whatever, you know, you got to fire some people probably to get, get the, the whole system in line. It sounds, sounds like a huge heavy lift. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's no different than any other, uh, issue that corruption is rampant in. you know, um, but I will say that at least in compassion first experience, we really, um, met some truly amazing, especially law enforcement officers that like, this is the right thing to do. We want to do this. We know it's right. Uh, as we were talking about with the uh, importance of masculinity in this issue, they realized this is our this is our job. This is our uh, passion as law enforcement officers, as men who want to uh, keep our community safe and to take down uh, the people who are trying to hurt us. 
they and they were ready to go. They were willing to risk themselves. They were willing to risk their safety, uh, their reputation, their careers. And there's a whole task force now in some of the regions where Compassion First works that are dedicated to this. And uh, these guys are amazing. So I always tip my hat to law enforcement and the guys who are uh, willing to put themselves on the line uh, to protect these people and go up against, uh, frankly, very dangerous traffickers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, if we bring this back home for a second, um, what what can the average person do? To for I don't know, I help the cause move forward. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm in mental health. I'm hosting right. a podcast. Right, we're expanding awareness. All right, cool. Let's pretend that uh, all of the Reno Sparks area listens to this, and 400,000 people are now aware that this mm-hmm. happens. Okay, awareness isn't enough. We need action. What's what's the what's the action step? I think the first one for for sure is just know the signs right of just someone who's just just getting abused right that sets the Mm -hmm. foundation for just for really everything and then obviously when you go up the pyramid with the end result what it is is victims of you know human trafficking sexual assault domestic violence whatever it is knowing the signs of what is abuse right the second step i think is knowing where to you know send people for help you know, that's more from a provider standpoint and knowing what agencies do what and what agencies can provide what for some people. But just knowing just the basic knowledge of who can help you out um, is huge. And then when you get to that point, you know, that's where providers kind of step in and that's where we um, kind of get to uh, partake in the healing process. And then knowing just how to have conversations and how to, you know, motivate and empower um, these victims that there's, you know, there is a life outside of this. And I think that's a very crucial part. And that can be a lot of make or break for a lot of people, because if we don't do that right as providers, then they're just going to go back. Yeah. And I would say, um, you know, this isn't an issue, obviously, as you mentioned, where you, know, you can take the family out and volunteer on the weekends, uh, to right, do this. Right. That's kind of what I'm asking. Right. Yeah, so you know, there, right. you can, um, uh, like John said, that is, it may not seem as glamorous or you might not get a t-shirt from it, you know, from doing the fun run. Um, but, but understand that this is, like I said earlier, something that went underground. So it's not going to be obvious. Uh, there's not going to be, you know, uh, a office in a business park that says, uh, you know, tra- uh, Peter and son's trafficking industry, you know, where you can go and protest or whatever like that. Uh, this is, it's hidden and it's hidden because uh, that's how they've gotten success and that's how they've been able to thrive. Uh, so look for the signs. Know, educate yourself. Know what to look for, and don't be afraid to stand up to it. Um, these are cowards doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know whether it's uh, informing law enforcement or getting involved with uh, whatever organization in your area is dealing with this, because I guarantee there's one out there. So if you don't know of an organization in your region, go do a Google search, and there'll be one around. There's a lot of people doing this. It's good work. Um, but you know you can definitely um, donate to whatever organization because that's the big thing right now um, for nonprofits you know they need donations because again this is a fairly new problem in our society again not that it's new it's happening but the awareness is new people are just getting into uh, how to really fight this effectively and that costs dollars so uh, I would say find someone you like be it in the local level uh, be the national level the international level like Compassion First um, and get involved with them donating going to their events volunteering getting the word out um, it's really a great way to do that because you have to be specialized to really make a big difference in the physical actions of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people don't have those skills or training, uh, but you can give the money to allow them to do their work. Who are the people that you've been training, you guys together, uh, school? school. We, we heard medical professionals, law enforcement. What else? Schools maybe? Um, yeah, 
yes, medical professionals. So for example, people that work in ER setting, uh, medical doctors, nurses, things like that. Um, we've talked, we've done presentations in schools for high schools. You know, we've talked to, um, government, um, we are starting to work with, um, law enforcement, um, the biggest one right now that I'm starting to endeavor starting in February is nightlife. And especially mm-hmm. in the Reno in the hospitality industry, it's huge. So what I'll be working on now is policy and procedures um, in nightclubs, in restaurants, in bars um, about trying to prevent not only human trafficking but sexual assault and domestic violence from occurring in the workplace. So we're not talking about like um, the, the the casinos downtown aren't hiring people and trafficking them. But what may be happening is that the people they're hiring are being trafficked by someone else. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. Exactly what you're hearing. Okay. So if you're in one of those industries, it may behoove you to reach out to these guys and say, hey, I want Absolutely. to learn more. Yeah. So maybe if you're a, a nurse in, a, in an outpatient clinic, you know, a, a, an urgent care or something, and you're like, oh, this, uh, uh, that sounds like a patient I just saw like two weeks ago. Uh, you know, some of these signs that you're talking about, like, you know, shifty eyes and uncomfortable. And they came in with somebody who didn't look to be a, you know, they called them partner, significant other, but they didn't look like there was a lot of love between them. Like, you know, that kind of thing. You go, oh, I think I need to get more hip to this. You can reach out to your local agency or contact these guys, you know, at their agencies and, and get some specified training. Right. Mm-hmm. We can yes. we can do that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um Teachers and school counselors, I'm guessing, too, for, for like you said, the high school level, because that's probably the, the more apt place for kids who are maybe, you know, on a wayward path, credit deficient, maybe in the system of some sort. Um, they may be likely to be victims. And we want to look out for that. Um, what else? Hospitality is a good one. You mentioned that. Yeah, pretty much any industry where you're dealing with a large flow of people. Uh, okay. Travel industry, hospitality industry, education, medical uh Shipping and transportation, uh, you know, it's, it's becoming much more common now for uh, flight attendants and cab drivers to get uh, training to oh, yeah. understand the signs, All to right. see the signs and, and realize, hey, this is what's going on. And then once you see those signs, how to report it and how to help these people as best you can. Um, so if you work in an industry like that, I would say talk to your management and say, hey, can we get some training on this if you're not already um, and make sure that, you know, this isn't happening under our roof because it, it very well may be uh, because it is so prolific. So it's like it's it's underground, but it's in broad daylight. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. It's really Paradoxical bizarre. And, and terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't to, like, you know, incite guilt in anybody. Like, oh, my gosh, I, you know, how, how unaware have I been? Mm-hmm. Um, you're not supposed to be aware of this because it's... Right, that's the point. No. Yeah. Well, um, I really appreciate you guys doing what you're doing i mean that's that's really it's noble work it's god's work you know it's um it's hard it's a hard fight because like ronnie said you can't just go out and um grab a picket sign or run do the fun run and you know feel good about yourself but um what you can do if you if you're if you're totally just off put by this um the the bare minimum you can do is write a check to the to the organization Mm -hmm. that's that's a very good way of doing it know that you're you're helping make earth better uh, for for people and and to something you said earlier too, Ronnie, it's like these individuals are the ones that we're saving, right? It's yeah. yeah, it's it's nice to you know squeeze the balloon and make it disappear from a certain area or make it shrink, um, but all is not lost um, because if you've saved individuals who are in a in a slavery situation and now you've returned their liberty and they're becoming whole again, whole human beings to contribute positively. Um, that's that's very noble, and and you have accomplished something. Even if you if the goal isn't you know to eliminate it, right. you set someone free, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, let me finish by saying one thing on that note that 
like most people before I got involved in this work, I knew that something like this was happening out there in the world, that it was a thing and it was horrible and, you know, but it wasn't a part of my experience. Mm -hmm. And so it really didn't affect me and I didn't really think about it that much, to be honest. Um, And it wasn't until an experience uh, where I was uh, in Europe helping with an organization out there and I I almost unintentionally, uh, incidentally, was uh, interacted with one of the victims, a young girl, six years old, um, that had gone through this trauma and um, seeing what it had done to her, seeing it in her, in her, in her face and her eyes and the way she uh, interacted with me, it was very painful. Um, I'd never seen it in person like that. And that's when um, it became real to me. It became an individual. You know, this Something really bad had happened to this girl and she didn't deserve it. She was six years old. Um, and from that point on, I was like, you know what, be it professionally or otherwise, I'm going to do something about this because I couldn't push it to the back of my mind anymore, you know? Right. So I, uh, encourage people who have really maybe not put too much thought into this, realize that, uh, this does destroy people's lives. And it's one of the most heinous things that humans do to each other, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, this isn't just a theoretical idea, but I would say move it to the front of your head because it's happening right now under your nose. What got you into this, John? So I kind of stumbled into um, this profession. You know, I used to do um, – originally I was working – my position was working with athletics, training coaches to talk to their players about preventing sexual assault and, and domestic violence. And then when we added the entity of providing um, victims to – services to human trafficking victims at our agency, uh, we had um, a client come in kind of same to Ron's kind of experience how painful it was. You know, before even this position, I think the most – human trafficking experience I've ever seen is from the movie taken. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, I mean, majority of, I mean, that's the closest I ever saw. And then hearing one of our victim stories that was, it was, I don't even think a movie director can come up with it with how, you know, dark it was. Um, that's where you're like, okay, this is, this is a big issue that we need to address. And then especially with our agency addressing all three of those issues, um, if we can true, truly the work that we do, if we continue to work towards it, it's, we're going to see numbers that go down, not only in human trafficking, but domestic violence and sexual assault and then yeah. substance abuse and then mental health. And it just trickles down to just an overall better community. You know, I grew up in this area. Um, you know, this is my home. Um, and, you know, we there's about six of us that take crisis calls at our agency, and we take about a crisis call an hour every hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, it, we're over it. Like, it's we're, we're yeah. tapped. We're done. Like, it's just we got to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no one wakes up wanting to get abused or get trafficked, right? None of us woke up with that mindset this morning. Um, so we need to figure out a way to stop it. I mean, we talk about, you know, we talk about the six-year-old girl from Europe. We can talk about any of the kids that you've ever counseled. You can talk about mm-hmm. any of the kids that we've ever worked with, even co- players that I've worked with over the years have gone over some horrific stuff of abuse. I mean, there's got to be a point where it's like, we got to stop and do this. we got to change something. And then I think um, with these kind of podcasts and events and stuff, I think we're going to we're start making strides forward. And then also awareness events. You know, with Human Trafficking Awareness Month, kind of we're halfway through it. we got about two more events coming up on January 23rd in movie theaters. Actually, there's a documentary it's called The Blind Eye, and it brings up sex trafficking in America. So that's going on uh, January 23rd. And then if you're in the Reno area, January 28th at 7 o'clock, we will be hosting a uh, DJ trivia night at Beer Envy. Um, which will have uh, awareness questions about human trafficking, and then you'll be entered into a 50-50 raffle. Sweet. Thanks, Catullus. I'm proud of you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Proud to know you as friends and uh, colleagues, and it makes me uh, inspired and encouraged to continue doing this work. And um, 
oh, <clears throat> excuse me, I hope other people are inspired as well to, to go do something because mm-hmm. it matters and uh, it is happening right in front of us. So, On behalf of the Zephyr Wellness family and the Naga Notes team, I wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.